0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The following is a message from heritagefoodsusa.com. The difference between wild Alaskan salmon and farmed Atlantic salmon is just as great as the differences between commodity pork and heritage breed pork. Huge! HeritageFoodsUSA.com is lining up a major social buy of sustainably harvested salmon in July and offering it at a phenomenal price to consumers. Check out HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more details on how to get in on this opportunity. Experience salmon the way it should be.
2: It is Thursday at one o'clock, and you are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report, coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on this gloomy, gloomy summer day. We're hoping to cheer things up, though. We have a Nick Fantasma on the line from Paradise Lockers. Nick, how are you?
3: Good. How are you doing?
2: Are you ready to bring a ray of sunshine into the gloomy Brooklyn day?
3: I'm certainly hoping so.
2: What's happening over on your end? You got sunshine?
3: Oh, it's gorgeous day out
2: here. Oh, man. This is when I really need my teletransporter. <laughs> so, Nick, um, it, it's great to have you on. I know you've been on, uh, I believe you've been on the show before with Heather, right? Yes. Back in the day. So just in case someone maybe missed that one episode, why don't we give them a quick rundown of Paradise Locker and what you do there?
3: All right. Well, we're a uh, family-owned uh, slaughter and processing facility in Tremble, Missouri, about a half hour north of downtown Kansas City. Uh, we do a lot of custom processing for local farmers, uh, individuals, and um, you know companies such as Heritage Foods, uh, as well as we have a, a full retail store up front where we carry all of our high-quality beef, pork, um, and, and poultry products.
2: So you're like the one stop shop for all of your meat needs. When in Tremble, come on down. Absolutely. So you said it's a family run business. How how long has the family been at the butchering business and the slaughtering process? And did that start at the same time, or did you start with one and added the other? How did how did it kind of get initiated?
3: Well, we were. Uh, my dad has been in the meat business for um he was in he was a uh, wholesale meat cutter for eighteen seventeen, eighteen years before he bought the before he bought the locker and he bought we bought the locker in nineteen ninety five January of ninety five is when we took over the business uh, and we've pretty much all been there ever since the beginning.
2: Awesome, and you deal. So I know you do a lot of work for heritage, doing pigs, um, and you do some beef for us. What are you doing? Other animals? Do you guys do goats or lamb or anything like that?
3: We do. Uh, we slaughter slaughter beef, pork, and lamb, and some goats. We don't don't do a lot of the lamb and goats, but there there are a few uh, farmers around here that raise them locally, and uh, we process them. Process those for them on, uh, you know, on the local level uh, for farmers markets and different things like that, and some just for, you know, people that are doing custom slaughter for their own home use.
2: Um, so custom slaughter, what is that? How does that different from regular slaughter?
3: Um, custom slaughter is just, in essence, is, uh, a farmer bringing us an animal for us to process it for them and them taking it home and putting it in their freezer for them to have for the year, you know, for a half a year or so, anything like that. Um, whereas USDA slaughter anything, um, you know anything done under USDA uh, can be resold throughout the country.
2: Excellent. And so, as a, to have it done under USDA regulations, what does that mean? I mean, you guys actually have an inspector who's in plant at all times with you, right? Yes. And I know in New York State, I'm assuming it's the same uh, with you guys. Like, do they really have to have their own bathroom? Yeah,
3: they have to have. Uh, we that don't is have to have the bathroom here, but he does have to have his own office with uh, phone and internet access that we provide for him.
2: You're like a pizza oven, a small line of dancing girls, and let's see, what else would I like? No, I'm just exactly. kidding. <laughs> Anything to keep him happy. No. <laughs> of course, of course. So... Um, you know, this is a farm report. I kind of want to talk about things a little bit from the farmer's perspective. So if I am a farmer in your area and I, you know, have my small herd of, of beef cattle and I want to get on your slaughter schedule, what does that look like? I mean, are you guys on a wait? Is it, is it something that it takes a while for me to get in? Like how, how busy are you?
3: We typically stay about a month ahead as far as our scheduling goes for our slaughter. Okay. Um, and it depends on the time of the year, too. Um, you know, of course, during the hot summer months, uh, you know, we're a little bit more open when we get closed into fall. Um, usually, by, usually by September, first part of October, we're booked throughout the fall. Um, we stopped doing whole deer processing uh, a few years back, and um, everybody kind of knows that now. Because of our account with Heritage Foods, we can't really shut down for deer season anymore. So...
2: Right. And I feel like that has like for that's been my impression, you know, Eagle Bridge Custom Meats is a slaughterhouse that I've worked with quite a bit here in New York State. And and they similarly that was for a long time, a big part of their business is working with the local hunters. And as they grew to have kind of more um, more clients, that, that was something that they, they let go of. It seems like smaller scale regional slaughterhouses have been. Kind of undergirded by the hunters and communities, and and so it sounds like that's on some level a success. Is there someone else in your area who's kind of risen to meet that need for for hunters in the fall? Well,
3: there's there's a lot of Missouri processors. There's a lot of processing plants in the state of Missouri. Um, some USDA, some just custom. Uh, it's so there's there's definitely people that. Um, that we can refer others to that we do refer others to uh you know hunters and that kind of thing we've we've still kept up doing our share the harvest program which is a missouri conservation program where hunters can donate their deers Uh, we bring them in process them and uh, have have a couple different organizations that will come and pick up the meat and take it to local food pantries oh wow um so we've continued to do that just because we really believe in the program and think it's a you know it's a good way. It feeds a lot of people. I think um, one of the top years that we had, I believe, was back in 2005, where statewide there was about 268 thousand pounds of venison that was donated to local food
2: pantries. Uh, that is like a score. I mean, as someone who grew up eating venison kind of year-round, fresh and from the freezer, I have to say, like, what a treat to to go to your local food pantry and be able to have have that as an option. That's awesome.
3: Yeah, it's it's always been a really good program that we've always believed in. So that's something that we don't really want to you know, we want to try and keep going with that as much as possible, but you know, as we get into doing more USDA work, it's 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 getting harder and harder just because wild game being a non-inspectable product um because it is wild and uh, you know it has to be completely segregated inside the plant and when you deal with the space issues and the kind of those kind of things that we deal with it makes it a little difficult but like i said you know we we really believe in the program and it does does a lot of good for a lot of people so that's something that we've kept up on um and then keeping up on we, we still take in boneless meat if someone wants to do uh Process, do their own, their own processing at home, bone mm-hmm. out the meat and bring it in to us. We'll still do summer sausage, jerky, snack sticks, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I'm hungry. So, um, what do you, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of, of slaughtering facilities and processing facilities in the state of Missouri. I mean, how, what, why do you think that is? Do you think that there's just more animal and livestock production? Because I know that's definitely a, a, a big struggle out here in the Northeast, especially for small and medium scale farms. It's is, is really not uncommon for people to drive two, three, even four hours to get their animals processed. Um, it sounds like that's not the case in Missouri. What, why do you think that that is?
3: I think just the the really the availability of, of or the uh, the need for it. You know, the Midwest has always been you know more of an agricultural uh, community or an agricultural business um, here in the Midwest with with uh, livestock farms and crop farms and different things like that. So the the need for it has been more here. We're, Kind of out on the coasts, you know, for a while, you know, and it's starting to come back now, which is reassuring, you know, definitely promising, and and uh, getting excited to see more and more people getting into the farming and uh, and the raising of animals back out on the coast. But I think people got away from it, you know. It's through the through the seventies and eighties and nineties, and you know. Everybody's been relying on grocery stores for their foods, and um, you know, it hasn't uh, the the demand for locally sustainably raised naturally raised animals uh coming from your small butcher shops the demand really hasn't been there in the last 20 to 30 years
2: okay so like things have kind of things are coming and coming full circle out on the coast so now i think, so. I think now it's like we're looking to you i mean let's talk about that a little bit i know there recently you know uh Josh Applestone from Fleischer's just put out a book on butchering. I think there's been several in the last couple of years. In addition to, you know, numerous articles in The Times or New York Magazine about kind of the rise of, of butchers as this new rock star. I know that's the thing we see a lot in New York City. As different, like smaller scale butchering shops open up, and restaurants start to identify themselves by their in-house uh, charcuterie or sausage making. I mean, have you found that you can walk with a little more swagger in your step when you're heading downtown to, you know, pick up your carton of milk? I mean, do people look at you as as a sex symbol now? Has that is, has that really changed for you, or?
0: Uh, it's
3: it's funny to <laughs> say that. It's kind of, you know, it, pretty much any time, you know, I. I don't know, eight out of ten people that I talk to or, um, you know, that uh, just in general conversation throughout the day or somebody that you meet in in public or anything, you know, you you tell them that you work at a slaughterhouse, and I would say probably seven or eight out of ten people still kind of wrinkle their nose at you. Um, But I, I do see it becoming... Um, more of a, you know, the, the whole rock star chef icon, you know, chef status has has grown, you know, since, of course, since Emeril and Mario Batali started on T with their TV shows and everything, um, you know, within the last 15 to 20 years, um, you know, that has, of course has, has blown up and, you know, every, everybody, it's, it's, you see a lot more people going into the culinary arts, um.
2: Yeah, but you that, still
3: don't see you don't you you still don't see a huge outcry for you know college kids that are going for ag agriculture or for ag business or for um you know getting into butchering
2: yeah what is um, that your background i mean did you did i mean how does someone I guess, you know, my sense has always been that it's more of an apprentice based position where you find someone to study under. But are there more established kind of training or programming or, you know, do the folks who work uh, down at Paradise have to go through particular certifications to be able to work in what's your staffing situation look like?
3: Uh, as far as as far as uh, certifications or anything that we require of our employees, it's basically on-site training. You know, of course, of course, we like to have someone who who has been um, been involved in in the business and knows what to do. But the vast majority of our employees came to us with no experience whatsoever. So um, you're
2: training them on-site.
3: Yes. Yeah. And and you know, with with for me, my brother, um, you know we started, I was 13 when my parents bought the business and uh, my brother was 15. So, you know, it's, it's been kind of a, uh, kind of a life lesson for us, you know, as we grew up learning, learning the business and, and, and going to what we know now. Um, but you don't, there, at the universities, at some of the major universities across the Midwest, the ag programs are starting to get a lot better. Uh, University of Missouri uh, in Columbia has a, has a wonderful ag program, um, and where uh, they actually do, um, they have a, a butcher shop, um, they have a, a slaughter facility, and a processing facility on campus. Uh, and they actually have their own little meat shop there on campus where kids can come in and buy snack sticks and jerky and steaks and, you know, different things like that. And it's proven to be a, a very good program for them. Um, and it's, you know, so there, there are some universities out there that are teaching the fundamentals of the butchering, the slaughtering, uh, processing, different things like that. But it's just not, uh, I guess, not as mainstream. Across the entire country.
2: Right, not yet anyway. Well, we're gonna uh, go to a break for a quick moment, and when we come back, we'll tuck into a little bit more of the Butchering and Slaughter Talk.
3: Sound good?
1: announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network.
2: We are back. We are on the line with Nick Fantasma of Paradise Lockers, talking about the what's what of slaughterhouses and uh, butchering. Um, So, Nick, I want to kind of scale back a little bit and talk a little bit about what what the uh, infrastructure for... For your operation looks like I know you guys bought it. It was an existing space, but if if let's say I was someone new, or say you or your brother were like, that's it, I can't work with my mom and dad no more. I'm like moving to New York. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my own thing. What a uh, what kind of startup uh, equipment or costs or uh, you know regulations are you looking at uh, if you want to get into this business?
3: It's a it's a big undertaking. Uh, there's there's a lot of equipment involved, and depending on the scale that you want to go that you want to go, you know, that, that you're trying to do with it. Um, you know, whether you're wanting to go under USDA, whether you're just wanting to do a custom slaughter facility that does, you know, the services, your local community and, and uh, uh, hunters and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, for, for to say, to start our business from, from scratch here, uh, there's there's a huge amount of undertaking that goes into it. Um, equipment costs are unbelievable. Um you, all of, of course, all of the equipment in our in our facility is either, um, you know, if it's a food contact surface, it's stainless steel. Mm-hmm. A stainless steel or, um, you know, a, any type of uh, non-food contact surface, we'd want to try and use, you know, lightweight metal that's not going to rust. So it's either galvanized or it's aluminum. Um, and, and, of course, none of that stuff is cheap. Uh, we just uh, we just recently purchased a, a new hog scalder a few years back, and that's a thirty three thousand dollar machine. Wow! Um, so there's there's a lot of costs that go into it, and not to mention your your electrical. You know everything that that runs in on uh, on on your pro- all your major processing uh pieces of equipment are running on three phase you know it's not just a 110 plug in that you can plug into the wall and it takes a lot of electrical to run all of this stuff as well um and then you have your refrigeration on top of that uh you know we have Probably I want to say fifteen to twenty different refrigeration units that run our refrigeration for the inside of the building wow um, between our coolers and our freezers and different things like that, so you know it's it is a it is a fairly big undertaking to go through um but you know at the same time it's you know there's there's people out there that that need a facility like ours um like most of the processing facilities that are out there um you know they people want to eat beef people want to eat pork so somebody's got to be there to do it
2: yeah I don't see that changing anytime soon well let's kind of do let's follow an animal kind of through your facility and talk about you know what what's happening and what's looking like I'd like to kind of talk about um you know the different equipment that's being used but also the different positions uh that that people can work so if I am you know pulling up to paradise lockers with a, a load of pigs I'm getting there on like what day of the week
3: uh, typically, depending on depending on what it is, all of heritage slaughter is typically done on a Monday and Tuesday. Of course, barring any USDA holidays, um, we can't slaughter under USDA unless we have a, a USDA official here. Um, so if if a USDA holiday or a national holiday follows on follows on a Monday or Tuesday, we have to rearrange our schedule a little bit. Oh wow! Um,
2: and you pay the USDA inspector, or or who pays this that salary?
3: he is he is a government employee, so his his normal eight hours a day is paid for by the federal government If we require him to work any overtime that day mm-hmm. we're responsible for paying his overtime
2: and is that I mean is that the norm or do you guys usually keep it in in the eight hour window
3: We definitely try our best to keep it in the eight hour window but uh, um, you know with with the amount of work that we're doing uh, it's it's not uncommon for him to have a half an hour, an hour of overtime in on a slaughter day.
2: Okay, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I unload my, you know, let's say I've got you know half a dozen pigs or whatever. You have, I'm assuming a holding area for the animals. And do you have any protocols as far as like the time frame between like when the animals are dropped off and when you'll slaughter them? Is there any kind of you know, minimum or maximum that that the animals need to be on your you know property before you'll proceed with slaughter.
3: Yeah, we definitely like to have um, like to have the animals here uh, within within a certain time frame. Of course, all of our you know and, and beefs and, and beef and hogs are different. Um, our the way our facility is set up, the way our pens are set up. Um, you know, hogs we can hold overnight. We don't hog hold hogs for any more than twenty four hours without having to feed um, that that rarely happens right um, but occasionally you know a farmer will have plans that you know he, he has to drop off the 20 hogs for heritage and he can't do it on the Monday morning that we need him to so you know maybe he has to do it over the weekend so you know in those kinds of circumstances we do provide food and different things like that but we like to we like to try and schedule our, our drop-offs uh, to where the animals do have time to rest because a uh, uh, you know, a, a ride in a vehicle, a ride in a trailer can be stressing to an animal.
2: Definitely um, stressful, you know, sure. It, it's
3: out of its normal circumstance, out of its normal habitat, and, and uh, not sure where it's going or what's happening. So it, it can be stressful, not say it is 100% of the time, but can be. So mm-hmm. we do like to have time for those animals to rest um, we, we usually say, you know, a window of about three to four hours. Okay. Um, once hogs get here that they need to have time to rest and, and relax a little bit and get some water in them. And, um,
2: oh, yeah. Are you there know, any where- issues with like what's in their belly? I mean, I do, you? I mean, you, you know, like before I would go into surgery, you know, if, if you have to go into surgery, you know, they want you to have an empty stomach. I mean, is it similar for slaughter? i
3: you know there are there are some places that um, that have said that because we we come across farmers who say you know do you guys want us to not feed them the 24 hours in advance or anything like that and and that's not something that we require um, you know it it does make things for a little bit easier when you go into once it, once the animal comes into the slaughter room and after the animal's down and once you start pulling all the entrails and doing the evisceration of the animal mm-hmm. um, obviously that. If you don't have a stomach full of of ingestion, or um, you know, uh, uh, it, it does make it easier, but that's not a requirement that we have. Okay. Um, I just don't see it necessary for somebody to to hold feedback from from an animal for 24 hours before it gets here. You know, we just we just take the extra time to make sure that we're not uh, we're not putting our knives where they don't belong, and and uh, you know, causing causing contamination in products.
2: Sure. So, so the, the, the pigs have been there for somewhere between, you know, 3 and 24 hours. They're in their pen. And then I'm assuming, you know, there's some type of, you know, channel that they walk down where they enter the kill floor. Now, is it, is it kind of one at a time, or are you able to do several animals at a time as far as the actual, you know, when they come onto the kill floor for the first time? Does that make sense? Um,
3: and yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. In, our, in our, our program, each hog is done individually.
2: And is that is that pretty standard in in like for the size processing facility that for you are cu-
3: for a smaller custom facility? Yes. Um, when you when you start to look at you know some of the bigger plants, um, they'll they do uh, they do numerous hogs at one time, numerous animals at one time. Um, but uh, with with the way our system is set up, and and you know with the the uh, the humane treatment that we. Deemed necessary for for uh, animals to be done here, mm-hmm. um, you know, not only for not only for the treatment of animals, but for the quality of the product, um, and the you know, safety
2: of the workers too. I mean, I think that's a big thing that that kind of gets left out of this discussion oftentimes too. Is that you know, it can be dangerous for you guys. So, you know. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. Um, you know, I've been throughout my years of, of being back on the slaughter floor. I've been kicked a few times, and and uh, you know, animals are they're big. You know, hogs, hogs weigh just as much as just as much as me, and um, you know, a beef is five six seven times bigger so um... they can they can do some damage if if you're not careful uh... so definitely that that is a big part of it as well um... you know the safety of our employees is is definitely in the top uh... uh... you know primary concerns for, for us when when we're doing work back uh... in in the shop and when we're training employees too you know everybody's always trained the right way of this is this is the right way to do things not only for not only for the integrity of the meat not only for the sake of the animal but for the sake of yourself as well and and the safety of the personal safety of our employees absolutely Um, so
2: the so the pig is on the kill floor and are you guys doing a stun or how do you how do you kind of make the initial takedown
3: we do a we do an electronic stun okay um and it's done behind the head um, that the hog is rendered unconscious, and we have about a thirty to forty-five second window to get that hog in the air, and get the blood out of the animal.
2: Okay, and that's because if it's if it goes longer, the the hog will wake back up, or because
3: won't necessarily will, but
2: can. But it's can. a possibility. Okay, so um, that
3: that within that time frame, brain function can can return.
2: So essentially, you stun them, which renders them senseless, and then I'm assuming that they're hoisted up by one of their, you know, rear legs, and you mm-hmm. their their throat is slit. And mm-hmm.
3: it's well, you know, when you think of a throat slit, it's not it's not cut from side to side. Okay. Um, to to prevent um, to to keep uh, possible contamination to a minimum, mm-hmm. uh, we do a straight was um, was an. In a, In essence, a stick. Um, The knife goes straight into the throat, right up towards the heart, Uh and um, a a slit is made up towards the heart, and then the knife is pulled out, so there's, you know, uh, about a one-inch, about the width of a knife, straight into the throat, pulled out, and then the hog bleeds out through there.
2: Okay. And how long does that take?
3: Um... You know, the actual, the actual physical sticking of the hog is done within seconds. Sure. Um, you know, less than, less than five seconds from the time that knife goes into the throat to where it's pulled out. Um, and for a hog to bleed out totally, um, you know, 15 to 20 seconds. Okay, wow. So it's, it's a pretty quick, pretty quick, quick process, process right there.
2: So then what's the next step?
3: Um, after that, the hog is, uh, is is hung until all the blood is, is drained from the pig, uh, and then it goes into the scalder. Tell us, tell
2: us about the scalder. I've seen those. I mean, they basically look like some kind of giant uh, washing machine.
3: Uh, yes, yeah, uh, There's um, and there's two rows, and depending on the, the size of the machine and the type of the machine, um, the, the scalder that we have has two different uh, spindles that have a bunch of different rubber paddles attached to it. And the hog will lay into the back of the machine on top of one of the spindles and next to the other one. Okay. Uh, there's one down below and then one that sits right next to the hog. And that scalder is filled up with water. And there's a thermocouple in the bottom that heats the water to about 68 degrees Celsius. And there is a, um, a hair loosening chemical that's added to the water. And what that does is it helps loosen the hair follicles so as, once you turn the machine on, those rubber paddles start to spin. And it's going to roll that hog around and the rubber paddles are going to grab at the hair and pull the hair pull out, out, out of the out of the skin.
2: I think it's something that people have, you know, fail to realize you're used to, you know, storybook pigs and picture pigs are always this kind of pale, kind of creamy, clean white. And that's what, you know, pig skin looks like when you unwrap your, you know, Boston butt with the skin on. But pigs actually have pretty coarse hair that can be different colors and and it covers yeah, their absolutely. entire did, body where so. breed
3: hogs do yeah um, you know hogs that are done in the commodity world uh, you know at, at the bigger slaughterhouses they've they've um, they've bred hogs to have white hair white hair pulls easier it scalds easier um, it does a lot you know it does it makes for a lot uh, nicer looking skin once it comes out of the once it comes out of the scalder um, and a lot less work to be done um, but when you're talking about purebred hogs. You're talking about Berkshires, Red Waddles, Durocs. Um, yeah, you're talking about black hair, red hair, um, you know, and, and you would think that the black hair would probably be the worst, but in reality, it's actually the red-haired hogs oh, that really? are the worst. Um, Durocs, are, Durocs are by far the worst hogs to scald. They have <laughs> a very, very thick, coarse red hair. Um,
2: and scalding isn't something that everyone does. I mean, that's kind of one technique. The other would be to, to skin the hog. Correct, and then you you and that's also what you would have to do if you have a really large animal because, you know, it wouldn't fit in the scalder.
3: Correct, yeah. If we put an animal that that weighs over four hundred pounds live weight, um, the the machine just won't take it, and and we'll lose our our, our chain will break. Okay, happened a few times. Before. So then, what um, happens?
2: The, you mean the chain, like the like as far as the the safety? The drive train. Okay
3: that actually it's it's a chain driven machine oh the chain um, of so the actual
2: machine i got it
3: right yeah um so it's the uh it's you know essentially like a bicycle there's it's a lot thicker of course a lot thicker chain than a bicycle and it's a double double wide chain um but uh, the chain that actually drives the paddles yeah i've i've had that break a few different times on us because oh, of because of a bigger pig or you know other circumstances things like that so
2: so when the pig comes out of the the scalder it's 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 hairless at that point and is that correct? Somewhat. Okay, and then you guys might have to do some touch-ups. Uh, right,
3: with like I said, with you know when when you're scalding a white-haired hog, it comes out of the scalder pristine. You know, very very little hair on it, you know, maybe a couple little spots here and there that you have to work with when you're talking about black and red hogs, Berkshire's and Duroc's Tamworth uh, red waddles. Um there's a lot of extra work that needs to be done. I actually have um that that station once that hog comes out of the scalder
2: mm-hmm.
3: and it goes onto the scraping cart, mm-hmm. uh, that station really controls the speed of the entire room. Okay. Um and I actually have two people on that station. There's one person that that brings the hogs in, drops them, bleeds them, puts them into the scalder. Uh one person that eviscerates the hogs or takes the entrails out, one person that splits and washes them. We have two people on the scraping station okay. to keep that's a bottleneck, up. yeah. Um And what are you scraping once,
2: with? I mean you're not in there with like a you know, a bag of big razors or something, right? Uh no.
3: No, it is <laughs> they're done with straight edge knives. Okay. Uh and and it's just a very, very sharp knife and once that pig comes out it's laid down onto the cradle and any remaining hair uh is, is shaved back with a knife, and then it's gone back over with a torch. The outside of the skin has gone back over with a torch that so we use, a natural gas torch Okay. Um, to, to, to get anything that we can't see, especially like, you know, down in between the toenails or in, in any of the crevices, like the armpits or anything like that, where Just you may like miss people. a spot. Yeah. The whole carcass has gone over then and then rescraped.
2: Okay. Oh, wow. Uh,
3: <clears throat> and then re just uh you know any any spots that got missed it's checked back over one more time and and scraped again if it needs to be uh and then the hog is rinsed down the outside of the carcass is rinsed down uh to get any outside hair or anything like that from uh from contaminating the the meat of the carcass okay Uh, it's raised up on another winch Mm -hmm. on a separate winch and then it's eviscerated all the entrails are removed. Um, the organs are removed, the liver, heart, lungs, uh, esophagus, all of that. And all of the organs are presented to the inspector. He checks every single every single animal every our animal inspector does. Through. It's not wow. required to. Um, they're required to check every six animals, uh-huh. one out of every six animals. Um, our inspector checks every single one. Um, and he's checking for, you know, diseases in the liver, um, lesions, any type of uh, abscesses or anything like that that could uh, that could result in contaminated meat. All right. Um, and then once once all of the entrails and all of the organs are out of the carcass, it's raised up to about uh, where the um, where the feet are quite a ways above your head, and the and the head of the carcass is about eye level. The head is broken back. Um through the bone to where uh, it's just attached by the back of the by the back of the neck, okay and then it goes over to our um, splitting and washing station. Each carcass is is individually checked visually from top to bottom to check for any contaminations, any contaminations being hair um, fecal matter uh, any type of any type of contamination that could cause that product to, uh, to be unsafe to eat. And then um, if any are found, they're trimmed off with a knife. They're not just washed off. Washing can spread, spread bacteria. It won't get rid of it. Okay. Um, and uh, so they're trimmed off with a knife, and then the carcass is split and then washed. Um, actually, the carcass is split, presented to our inspector, And once he clears it, we wash that, we rinse that carcass down and it goes to the, it goes to the rail scale to, to get prepped to where the weight's logged in and it's tagged. And then it goes into the cooler.
2: Wow, man, that was awesome. Uh, we are at the end of our time. Thank you so much, Nick, for taking some time out of what I know is a busy day for you to walk us through that process. It was awesome.
3: Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
2: Awesome. Well, we'll be in touch. Tune in next week at 1 o'clock for The Farm Report every Thursday.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.
4: This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This week, all over the Internet and also in all of the meat uh, trade papers, as well as in this particular article on digital trends, A story has been running about the poop burger. Japanese scientists have found a way to create artificial meat from sewage containing human waste. Mitsuyuku Ikeda, a researcher from the Okayama Laboratory, has developed steaks based on proteins from human excrement. Tokyo sewage approached the scientist because of an overabundance of sewage mud. They asked him to explore the possible uses of the sewage, and Ikeda found that the mud contained a great deal of protein because of all the bacteria the researchers then extracted those proteins combined them with a reaction enhancer and put it in an exploder which created the artificial steak the meat is 63 percent proteins 25 percent carbohydrates 3 percent lipids and 9 percent minerals the researchers color the quote-unquote meat red with food coloring and enhance the flavor with soy proteins Initial tests have suggested people say that it even tastes like beef. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Kate Kiefer. Nicole Taylor
1: is always the first to talk with new and exciting personalities in the food world on her show, Hot
4: Grease. Check out a little clip. Everything is super sweet in the Heritage Radio Network studios today. We're chatting with Fanny Gerson. Fanny is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America and the 2011 James Beard Foundation Cookbook Award nominee. Oh my God, <laughs> we fry in bed style. We have to talk <laughs> dough. Donuts I'm going to have to say Fanny. I don't know if you know this I was definitely The first person in Brooklyn To start talking about dough Did you know that? I, I knew that
2: Last time I saw you uh, But I didn't know that before So we have
4: to talk dough I mean It, it is it is a bonafide Phenomenon In Brooklyn uh, I'm so excited To be part of it I, And I can't believe it <laughs> you know? I mean I was just telling you Before the show That uh, I think about A month ago I went to dough On a Sunday At 2 o'clock And all the donuts. You like were what dough. you hear? You
1: can hear Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. live on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast or check it out in our archives. The following is a public service announcement from Just Food. Help bring live chickens into food challenge communities through your donations to the Just Food City Chicken Project 2011. The City Chicken Project would not be possible without the volunteer hours, donations large and small, and the vibrant energy and ideas of the communities we work with. Just Food is a nonprofit organization that connects New York City communities and local and urban farmers with the resources and support they need to make fresh, locally grown food accessible to all. To donate, search on kickstarter.com for Just Food and find their City Chicken Project. For more information on Just Food, visit justfood.org or call 212 645 9880. That's 212 645 9880. Let's keep making New York City a better place to live and eat. The following is a message from Zingerman's. From June 30th to July 3rd, 2011, come hang out at Camp Bacon, a four-day festival hosted by Zingerman's. The main event is an all-day affair at Zingerman's Roadhouse featuring plenty of bacon, bacon learning, and such luminaries as Alan Benton, John T. Edge, Molly Stevens, and more. The event will be taking place in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Proceeds from this event benefit Southern Foodways Alliance. Also, on Friday, July 1st, there'll be a special benefit performance featuring Andre Williams and the Gold Stars and special guest John Langford and Skull Orchard. Visit www.zingermanscampbacon.com for more information and for tickets. Once again, that's www.zingermanscampbacon.com.